Have you ever noticed that in the movies, the hero will usually ride off into the sunset? But in the Bible, the heroes die. The reason is Hollywood has nothing better than to present a happily ever after ending so that we ignore the reality that we'll all die one day. But the stories of how God's people face the reality of death head on is good for us because we simply can't ignore the fact that one day, each and every one of us will die. So with that happy opening, I invite you to open your Bible to Genesis 50. Genesis 50 is the last chapter in Genesis. And here we will find the account of the deaths of Jacob and Joseph. But it's more than a story about death because it's about dying well, because there's more to death than just dying. Jacob and Joseph didn't die well because they were comfortable in their own old age, and surrounded by family, they died well because they died in faith, knowing that death was only the last page of volume one that was about to turn to the first page of volume two, our new life, where we will then face a sequel that begins with life eternal in the blessed presence of of God. And this is an important lesson to show us how we can face death, not by hiding or by denying, but by embracing it with the knowledge and the confidence that the greater power, promise, and purpose of the living God has conquered death through Jesus Christ. So the story of Jacob and Joseph's death doesn't end with them riding off into the sunset, but with them walking into the sunrise of that new life, life eternal. So I've titled this message from the last chapter of Genesis, Into the Sunrise, because while finishing this book carries a sadness of losing old friends, it also has a joy of seeing how it points ahead to the fulfillment of the promises God made from the very beginning of time. Now, the word Genesis means beginning, and over our five-year journey through this book, we've learned who created the universe and why, and how a cosmic rebellion brought human sin and death to God's good creation. The second-century church father, Athanasius, he summarizes the condition of fallen humanity when he writes, God had made us as embodied spirits and had willed that we would remain uncorrupted. But we, having turned from the contemplation of God to the evil of our own devising, have come inevitably under the law of death. But the first spark of hope in that dark tragedy of the fall came immediately in God's promise to Eve of an offspring who would one day crush 
that cosmic rebellion and restore the creation to what God intended, which is a temple to display his glory that we will enjoy forever. God's promise was veiled. We saw that. But it came clearer in Genesis 12 when he called a man named Abraham to leave his home and to go to a land where God would bless him. And from him would come a great nation. And through him, all the peoples and families of the earth would be blessed. And the promise was sealed with a legal agreement called a covenant. And Genesis 15 tells us that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. By God's gift of faith to Abraham, God declared him righteous, not of Abraham in himself, but because of the righteousness that came through God's gift of faith. So that Abrahamic promise, and it moved forward to Isaac, born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And then it passed to the younger Jacob, not the firstborn Esau. And that was to show God's purpose and his power in election. Jacob's family grew, and in spite of their human dysfunction, which we struggled with through those, those chapters 20 and on, God blessed them and protected them. And throughout Genesis, what we learned is that human evil can never derail God's unstoppable plan of redeeming his creation. And in the end, we saw that Joseph and his evil brothers in those last chapters were the clearest examples. So that's Genesis, five years in a nutshell. And it brings us into the deaths of Jacob and Joseph as they walk off the stage of history and into that sunrise of eternity. So I invite you to stand, if you're able, as I read for a portion of our text beginning in Genesis 49, starting in verse 29. 49:29 Then he commanded them that's J- Jacob and said to them I am to be gathered to my people bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. So Jacob's sons honored his request in uh, chapter 50, verse 12. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham had bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And then drop down to verse 25. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him in Egypt, and and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. May God bless the reading of his word to us. Please be seated. One big idea that I want to draw out from this text is on the top of your handout, and it's this. God will turn our mourning in death to dancing in gladness through the faith that brings forgiveness and eternal life. 
And from this text, I'm going to draw out three truths. First, that Jacob died a good death because he trusted in God's promise of a homeland. Second, that Joseph died a good death because he trusted in God's promise to make a great nation for that homeland. And then third, how a deep trust in God's forgiveness brings peace to our lives now and the confidence to face our death as the grand beginning of what's truly the rest of our lives. You see, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has won our righteousness. He has conquered sin and death by putting death to death by his death and then resurrection and now his enthronement at the right hand of the Father. Question one of the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my Savior Jesus Christ. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly, willingly, and ready from now on to live for him. Question one of the Heidelberg, larger catechism. And in the moments ahead, we will see this truth rise up out of this text in the closing chapters of Genesis. So let's, let's begin with Jacob's good death. The Bible bookends important passages and important ideas, uh, usually with an idea or a word. Um, and with Jacob's death, it's bookended with the words, in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, east of Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burying place. So that bookend uh, encompasses Jacob's uh, good death. Now, in ancient times, being buried in a specific place meant you were trusting your body to the protection of the deity over who ruled over that particular ground. And the cave in Canaan that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite was the first ground for God's people in the land God had promised to Abraham. Jacob wanted his body buried with the bodies of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah because it was in the land that God had promised to his people and Jacob belonged to God. So Joseph promised to bury him in Canaan and Jacob, it says, drew up his feet and died. The Bible then tells us how we are to honor the bodies of our deceased loved ones. Notice that Joseph embalmed his father's body with care, and everyone, including the Egyptians, wept for 70 days. Death has a sting, you see, and the only proper ointment for it is our tears and our mourning, because death leaves a hole in the hearts of those who are left behind. 
And any attempt to paper over death with a forced happiness only ignores what must and should be acknowledged, that we will miss them as we continue on in life. Returning to our text then, when the mourning period ended, Joseph said to Pharaoh's advisors in verse 4, If I have found favor in your eyes, please speak into the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land in Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up and buried his father. Now, the procession must have been incredible. It was made up of Joseph's family and Pharaoh's entire staff, including his army on horses and chariots. Now, the shortest route from Goshen, let's see if I get my map right, Goshen in Egypt, no, I've got it wrong, Goshen in Egypt over to the area near Hebron, which is where this cane, uh, cave of Ephron the Hittite was located. The shortest route is about 200 miles. But the text tells us that they stopped at a place that was called the threshing floor of Atad. Now, that's the long way around, because to go from Goshen along the bottom of the Mediterranean over to Hebron is one thing. But to go across the wilderness and sink down and go across the bottom and then come up through the land of Moab, Moab, so they end up on the east side of the Jordan River, Well, what a strange route for them to have taken. It would have doubled their trip. So there's a couple of questions that we need to answer here. First of all, why did Pharaoh send his army? And second, why the long journey? Well, the answer to the first question is politics. Joseph was indispensable to the Egyptian economy, and if he didn't return, not only would Pharaoh have a major leadership issue, but under Joseph, Israel could grow to be a significant nation and a threat on Egypt's eastern border. So Joseph understood Pharaoh's fear, which is why he carefully crafted his request. And as we saw, Pharaoh honored his request, but he sent the army just in case, just in case. So that begs the question, why take the long way around? Why go through Moab? Well, there's two reasons. First, the route is the same one that Israel would later travel when God led them out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the threshold of the promised land. On this first journey, the Egyptian army followed Israel to protect them. Now, Pharaoh's army will follow Israel again many years later, not to protect them, but to destroy them. And we know what happened there. God drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. But after the wilderness wanderings for Israel, when they did arrive on the east side of the Jordan River again, the Moabites and the Canaanites 
would have remembered when these people came the first time. And they would have remembered the powerful army that protected them. And they would have remembered the God who protected them. And that's why God used freely chosen human decisions to bring this whole entourage on this long route to come up through Canaan and across the Jordan, through Moab and across the Jordan. But there's a second reason. And it's found in the little word, up. In the Bible, up can describe a physical journey, a priestly action, a spiritual transformation, or indicate the presence of God. Now, during the Exodus, as we know, when God wanted Israel to move and when God wanted Israel to stop, when he wanted them to move, the cloud of the pillar of, of fire and cloud would move up, indicating God's presence. And when they crossed the Jordan again in, jo- in the book of Joshua, Joshua had the priest take up the Ark of the Covenant, indicating that God was leading them into the promised land. And then later, David, King David, would carry up the Ark to indicate God's presence in Jerusalem. So this word up carries significance in the Bible, and it occurs seven times in our passage. That brings us to our first fill-in then. Jacob's burial foreshadows God's deliverance of his people from slavery to freedom in the promised land. This whole story bookended by this words of the cave in the field that Ephron, or that Abraham bought from Ephron. It it continues to point to Jacob's confidence and how his burial foreshadows that God would bring his people up from slavery to freedom in the promised land. Jacob's dying wish was to have his mortal remains buried in the promised land because God had never failed him in life. And Jacob knew that God would not fail him in death either. And although Jacob would not see the prophecy in his burial, Moses recorded these events for ancient Israel's confidence in God's promises. And they're useful for us as well as God's people today so that we can have that same Confidence that when we draw up our feet and breathe our last in this world, we will know that God will be bringing us to that promised new life. So that's Jacob's death. Well, verses 22 and 26 of chapter 50, and the words 110 years is the second bookend, the second bookend, which surrounds Joseph's good death, and it points to the promise, God's promise of a great nation for the people he's building. As our man for all seasons, that's Joseph, we're not surprised that he kept his promise to Pharaoh and he returned to Egypt for the rest of his life. And there God blessed him to enjoy three generations of his children and his grandchildren. 
But he lived in Egypt for 93 years of his 110 years. But Egypt was not his home. It was not his home. So when he died, verse 26 says they embalmed his body and put him in a coffin. Now, where Jacob's burial foreshadowed the Exodus and foreshadowed the promised land, Joseph's burial foreshadows God's promise to make from Abraham a great nation that would be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. And again, we see this word up. Notice Joseph said to his brothers, God shall bring you up out of Egypt. And his instructions to embalm him and put him in a box were so that you shall carry my bones up from Egypt. The passage, just these two sentences, just drips with prophecy. Because twice Joseph tells his brothers, God will visit you. Now Egypt, or Israel, is in Egypt. A fledgling nation at this time, 70 plus some people over these last five years, so maybe 100. And they're enjoying good times in Goshen. Or even, uh, even the shepherds for Pharaoh's um, multitude of, of flocks and cattle. But Joseph knows that God will bring them up out of Egypt. God will visit them. And his instructions to embalm him and put him in a box. You should carry my bones up. So he tells his brothers twice, God will visit you to make sure that when God does visit them and when you leave, you take my bones with you. Now, our English translation, coffin, is from the, the Hebrew word Aaron, Aaron. And it's a uh, more accurately translated as a box, basically. But Israel didn't bury their dead in a box. They wrapped them. And then they put them either in a cave or they buried them in the ground. Think Lazarus and Jesus. Good examples. But the Hebrew word for Joseph's box is the same word as Ark of the Covenant. So when God did bring Egypt, Israel up out of Egypt, Israel carried two arks. The Ark of the Covenant, which they had built then in the first month in the wilderness, and they had with them the Ark that contained Joseph's bones. So we've seen in the past where Joseph's life gives us many parallels with the life of Jesus. And we look, when we look carefully at verse 25, we find one more. Because putting Joseph in an Ark to carry him up from Egypt foreshadows God's word through the prophet Hosea later. Where he, where he was inspired, God speaks to Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now for the people in Israel, living in the promised land at the time of Hosea, that would have made perfect sense, because they knew that God had called them as a people group up out of Egypt when the, 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 the yoke of slavery had gotten to the point where God heard the they're groaning and, call, and, and delivered them out. So it would have made sense to them. But Joseph may have seen further to the promise described in Matthew's gospel. Because when Herod was trying to kill the baby Jesus, Matthew 2.14 says this. Joseph, that's the, um, Mary's husband, Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
Joseph took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill the words of the, the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Joseph wanted his bones in a mobile carrier because he could see beyond to the promise that out of Egypt God would call his son. This wonderful parallel, Jesus brings us then to our second fill-in. Joseph's burial foreshadows God's greater promise of a physical, spiritual, eternal promised land for all God's people. Physical, spiritual, promised land for all God's people. Joseph wanted a box so his physical body could go when God physically brought his people up from the physical Egypt to the physical land promised to Abraham in Canaan. But Moses describes Joseph's journey in a way that shows us the fulfillment of the later reality of deliverance from the spiritual Egypt of slavery to the physical, spiritual promised land for people from every tribe and language and people of nation and nation who are made righteous by Christ and gathered in celebration forever. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world because his kingdom was under construction. And later, he told his disciples in John 14, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. That's the beauty of Christ's bodily resurrection. And that's the, the, the underlying foundation of why it, the promised land is a spiritual, physical kingdom. Because as Athanasian said in the opening remarks, that we are embodied spirits. And our hope in life, facing death, and on the other side of death, is the fact that we know that God is preparing a place for us where one day when Jesus returns, our physical bodies will be reunited with our souls and then we will enter the physical, spiritual, promised land of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and enjoy his glory forever. And we're blessed to live on this side of the cross, to see the fulfillment of these Old Testament shadows that have become our New Testament reality. And it gives us more reasons to trust in God's promises which is exactly what we need to find the strength to face all that God will bring us in this life as he prepares us to walk into the sunrise of eternity. And that brings us to the final point then. How do we get through this life 
as we prepare for our good death. Well, Jacob and Joseph's deaths are that third bookend. They bookend the central part of this passage that gives us the answer to how we should live as we prepare for our good death. You see, when Jacob died, Joseph's brothers, their fear arose again that Jacob or Joseph would would extract his revenge because he hadn't really forgiven them. He was merely biding his time until Jacob died so that he could pay them back for their crime. That was what was in their minds. So they go to Joseph. They send a message to Joseph. Verse 16 says, your father, this is the brother speaking, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Well, it's not likely that Jacob actually said that because if he had, he would have told it to Joseph while he was still alive. So his brothers are spinning the situation here because of the fear they have that Joseph is going to exact his revenge. But if Joseph's forgiveness was true forgiveness, which which we'll see that it is, it was based on his belief that while evil should be judged, he was not the judge. So Joseph said, to his brothers, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And then he continues with one of the greatest statements in the Bible of why we are to forgive, not judge when we're wronged. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, we know that story, went went through that story. And what we see here is that Joseph doesn't deny that there was wrongdoing, or he doesn't try to pretend that the evil didn't really happen. Instead, he reminds his brothers that God uses all things, including human sin and evil, in ways we can't see or expect to continue to advance his plan of redemption. And Joseph's response shows us then how we should live in this fallen world when we are sinned against and with our sin in two ways, in two ways. First of all, we can know that if wrongs others commit against us, or I'm sorry, we can't know if wrongs that others commit against us may be used by God for our or for some greater good. It's quite the opposite, actually. Paul says in Romans 8.28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that means that somehow when we feel wronged, it's working for our good. Because Paul writes in the Greek, he says, all things, and in the Greek, the word all means all. All, thank you. All things. So 
we don't know when we're wronged against if it's some, uh, we don't know yet how it's going to work for our good, but all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So it begins its good work when we understand that our task is to forgive, not to judge. So that's the first way we see living the good life. Second, we sin by breaking God's commands and we sin against our neighbor and sometimes we feel so helpless and defeated that we wonder if we're ever really forgiven, if we're really saved. Perhaps the greatest parallel is between Joseph and Jesus and how Joseph demonstrates to his brothers the forgiveness that we have in Christ. In verse 21, he says, So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph is the second most powerful man in Egypt. And with one word, he could have sent his brothers to prison for the rest of their lives. That was their fear. But Joseph says, Don't fear, I will never leave you nor forsake you or your little ones. Isn't that what our great Savior has told us as well? John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You know, I said we sang the sermon already. That song that we sang earlier, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, the one who put an end to all my sins. Our sins hurt us. There's no question. Our sins hurt others. No question. And it grieves God's spirit in us. No question. And God must judge sin. But judgment and mercy kissed at the cross. On the cross, the greatest act of evil possible by humanity was unfolding according to the perfect plan by which God would be just in punishing sin and the justifier of sinners by taking their sin on himself and facing the full weight of the punishment due to us. Don't you love that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? We just started singing it, oh, not too many months ago. But the second verse, turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embraced. There the Son of God gave his life for us and our measureless debt was repaid. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? And when we internalize that truth, we then can face whatever comes our way in this life, and it drives our ability to forgive. Jesus tells us to forgive. Joseph teaches us how to forgive. His trust 
in knowing that God was faithful to his promise and that God had orchestrated all things in his life, including the evil that his brothers had done to him, wanting to murder him, selling him into slavery, rising up again, back in prison, back up in second man in command, saving the entire world, including God's people, all of this stuff, he knew that God's hand was in it and that it was teaching them and him how to, how, how to face life, and he forgives them because he knows that God has pronounced him not guilty by his gift of faith that brought the Spirit, that changes us, and assures us of his love. That's what Joseph spent his life on. That's why he is the man for all seasons, we called him. He shows us how to forgive. But his brothers show us also how to accept forgiveness, how to embrace forgiveness, even when we can't quite believe it because it seems too good to be true. But you know what? You know why it seems so good to be true? Because every good and and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow or shifting. It seems too good to be true because it is too good to be true, but it is true because it's from God. Isn't that great? Here's our final fill-in then. Believing God's promise of forgiveness brings goodness in living and dying by knowing life eternal awaits. God has promised to turn our mourning into dancing as those that we love who've gone on before us now know with certainty. Believing God's promises allowed our Old Testament heroes to walk into the sunrise confident in knowing that God was waiting to welcome them to the final promised land. And then Joseph and his brothers show us what forgiving and accepting forgiveness look like. And knowing we're forgiven gives us delight in this life now and the assurance of life forever when we are about to draw up our feet and breathe our last of this air. Well, that's the book of Genesis. Four years, 11 months, 29 days. It began with a man in a garden enjoying God's presence, and it ends with a man in a coffin looking forward to his upward restoration to the inexpressible joy of God's presence in the renewed garden forever. This is my hope. And may this be your hope and your blessing today and every day until we are together in the eternal kingdom of God. Let's pray.